0: Uh, every age, every place, every culture, every civilization, every family, every person's life, okay. there are two great and competing forces at work, two modes of living, two, two patterns of life. Of course, there are forces of good and evil. You could, you could analyse it in that way. But, but I want to talk about something a little bit more subtle than that. Two, two other things that are going on. It was um, uh, analysed, brought to the surface very very clearly by the 5th century theologian Augustine, who some of you will know. I have been reading a lot of recent times. He talked about the city of man and the city of God. His book was entitled The City of God. And he said the city of man is all about power, pride, self-assertion. It's not entirely bad. It, we're not talking just good evil here. Um, uh, the city of man, he said, can can, can build Good things, great civilizations, But in the end, because it's focused on power and human power, it is always flawed. It always has a horrible dark side. And every city of man, he said, will fall. God brings them down. But he said, alongside that, there is another mode of living. There is another, another set of forces. There is another kind of civilization called human civilization, called the city of God. And he said that is very different because the city of God is characterized by weakness, not by power. The city of God, he says, is characterised by self-giving, not self-assertion. The city of God is characterised by humility, not pride. And the city of God, he said, in every age, actually always looks pathetic against the city of man. And yet the city of God is an eternal civilization. The city of God, though it looks pathetic, endures, thrives, produces fruit, fruit that the city of man never can produce. In every age, the city of God continues to flourish, said Augustine, as people of faith in humility and sometimes in weakness, entrust themselves to God and find actually that this is the path to joy and fruitfulness. In every age there is a city of man where people rely on power and strength and self-assertion which looks really good but is being brought down to naught. Now, in a sense, that's what—that's exactly what Jesus was talking about when he you spoke those those succinct little uh, aphorisms, which we call the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, he said, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. This is the city of God. This is the way that God works. He raises up the poor, the humble, the lonely, the, the, the lowly and the mourning. And makes them part of an eternal civilization. And, says Jesus, he puts down the proud, the haughty, the strong. So that they come to nothing. But you see, those principles that Jesus um, had on his lips were not just discovered or revealed by him at that moment. You see them working throughout the pages of Scripture. And that is why I've called this, this series on 1 Samuel, The Beatitudes of Samuel. You could probably put that title over many, many stories in, uh, in the Bible and in the Old Testament but it is, ve- it is going to be very prominent here as we study the first eight chapters of 1 Samuel you will see powerful people impressive people leading people proud people put down they belong to the city of man and you will see humble people lowly people mourning people raised up because they belong to the city of God about them are the Beatitudes of Jesus true and of course that's very clear at the beginning of the story isn't it this uh, story of Hannah in chapter 1 epitomises what we're going to learn so we're going to spend a little while introducing ourselves to Hannah and uh, her particular story. I want us to learn three big lessons from uh, 1 Samuel 1 and we'll go through them one at a time. The first lesson is a very clear one from um, the story of Hannah we will suffer. Hannah's suffering as she endures uh, childlessness is, is not unique. It is an example of a universal reality. Things are not the way we wish they were. We live in a fallen world, troubled by evil, and no one, but no one, can escape that nor actually should we see Hannah's um, uh, suffering as due to some specific sin of hers. There is no indication of any particular sin here. True, she is the second wife in a polygamous marriage, and the Old Testament does actually quietly criticise Polygamy, which comes, uh, which pops up uh, uh, in several places in the Old Testament. But actually polygamy wasn't unlawful in Old Testament Israel. Only in the New Testament does the New Testament affirm really clearly that marriage is for uh, one man, a lifelong bond of one man and one woman. Hannah is not within the culture and the uh, uh, situation she finds herself in, engaged Explicitly in sin against the laws of Israel in being a second wife. And we should not see her childlessness, therefore, as due to that sin or any other. She just suffers. Let me say um, for a moment, there, there are some people who, who teach the Bible as if all suffering was associated with some specific sin in the person's life or some specific faithlessness in their life. There is, for instance, what some people call health and wealth teaching, which is actually, uh, seems to me, becoming increasingly common. That teaching says, That actually, if you get your faith right, and you get your life in order, and you renounce all sin, then you will be healthy, you will be wealthy, you will live to a a ripe old age. It's in your hands to avoid suffering. That is dangerous, nasty, pernicious rubbish. It leaves people who suffer... With a terrible burden of guilt that they do not necessarily have to have. Sometimes we do, through our own foolishness, bring suffering on ourselves. But more often than not, it is not related to any direct sin of ours. That's the message of the book of Job, In John chapter 9 you find uh, Jesus being introduced to a man born blind and they said, who sinned, this man or his parents? And Jesus says emphatically, neither. You will suffer. And you cannot escape it. It will not necessarily be associated with your sin. You will not necessarily be able to... um, have a healthy, wealthy, long life. That is not what the Bible promises. 1 Samuel 1 describes Hannah's suffering really poignantly in a series of, uh, of vignettes. We learn in, chap- in verse 2 she's childless. Um, Elkanah had two wives. One was called Hannah, the other Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had None, and frankly, there's agony in just in that chapter, in that sentence, isn't it? But Hannah had none. And I've stood alongside childless couples, sometimes single women longing for a family, and to some extent felt and seen their pain. Whilst others like now produce children after children and they do not. It's painful. And that, that, that aching loss is never really compensated by other blessings. Dear old Elkanah, he tries his best, doesn't he? Verse 4, Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of meat to his wife Peninnah and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb. It doesn't really compensate. I remember a, well, a story of John Stott, a, um, a great Christian leader, near the end of his life now, who, who was single all his uh, all his life. And um, it's the story that one, one, one day on holiday, he loved children. He was happily walking hand in hand with with a small child who was a child of friends of his, I think. When suddenly he was just sort of crippled. Stopped with the pain. Because he would never have children, he would never have grandchildren. That pain never goes away. And represented here, there will be that pain and other pains. Deep. Internal suffering. And you know there are people who sometimes intentionally make it worse. Look at this other wife, Penina, verse 6. Because the Lord had closed uh, Hannah's womb, her rival Penina kept provoking her in order to irritate her. Perhaps here is another example of, of how impossible it is, in fact, to have a happy polygamous marriage. There's just conflicts there. There's pain, even with our Western habit of having serial monogamy, as they call it, that is not God's intention. But whatever the causes of her provoking, it's the provocation, which is the pain. Now if you, if you um, uh, pen a whole lot of chickens or turkeys uh, together and rearing them for, for, for Christmas or whatever and one of them has a tiny spot of blood on its skin, the other turkeys will peck at that and make it worse. And then, in fact, they will just go into an increasing frenzy until they kill that turkey or chicken. And human beings so, so often like that. Why are we so cruel to one another? I don't know, but we are. And alongside that intentional pain, um, frankly there are well-meaning people who just misunderstand us, don't they? You know, Elkanah, he's just a typical man. You know, he's got all the sensitivity of a lump of cold porridge, hasn't he? Verse 8, Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Idiot, you know. He may be a nice man, but get real, Elkanah. You can't just wave a magic wand. Men men want solutions. You know, I'm here. I can be the solution to your misery. No, you can't. And then uh, uh, another man misunderstands her. uh, uh, The priest Eli at uh, Shiloh. People went to worship there in those days. And uh, Hannah goes there with her family. She prays passionately to God about her childlessness in the view of this man, Eli. And he completely misinterprets what's going on. Verse 12, as she kept on praying to the Lord, uh, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. And Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, how long will you keep on getting drunk? Get rid of your wine. What what, what insensitivity. However, I have to confess that uh, Eli's not the only spiritual leader who makes mistakes and tramples on feelings sometimes. Any of you who's been um, in this church for a while will have your own Peter Comont story, I'm sure. We just don't always pick up what's going on. That's our first lesson, a lesson we need to understand, we need to be ready for in this world. Simply because you may be a person of faith here does not mean you can escape suffering. Simply because you may be amongst the well-meaning people of God here does not mean that sometimes they won't make it worse. Either by their petty cattiness or simply by, by by their their not understanding, be ready for it if you, If you are looking for a life of unalloyed bliss, well, don't read the Bible. go and see what the Buddha can offer perhaps or whatever go and find some prophet who will uh, tell you that he can remove all of your suffering there are hundreds of them out there in the world I believe they are all liars and I believe that the Bible tells the truth you will suffer be ready for it be comforted by that Alone, if you are enduring it now, you are not enduring anything that Scripture did not expect you to endure. Second, simple, but I think clear lesson from this story of Hannah is that prayer changes things. Hannah prayed didn't she? Uh, verse ten, in bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord. Now this verse on its own warns us not to think that prayer changes things in some magical way or some instantaneous way, as if it's just a formula that that, that, that helps you to cope. Hannah prays in bitterness of soul. That phrase gets used a number of places in the Bible. And it, and, it, and it has a sense of emotions being out of control, of deep discontent, of, of anguish, and sometimes actually even of dangerous aggression. This is not meek little Hannah saying her prayers and everything's going to be alright. This is a woman ranting in her heart. She's bitter. She weeps much, but she prays. And when I say prayer changes things as well, I also want you to want us to realise it doesn't change things quickly necessarily. Um, we learn, for instance, in uh, verse three that year after year Elkanah and his family, including Hannah, went up to the place of prayer at, at, at Shiloh. And, and year after year, Penela popped out another sprog. And you can be certain that year after year, Hannah was praying. This is not something that just sorted itself quickly. She prayed. No, the way in which it changes things is this way. Basically, when suffering hits you, you have a choice. You can shut yourself away, you can internalize it, you can seek a few friends perhaps to comfort you and discover what Hannah found. It's not very adequate. You can try to forget it and move on. You can sink into bitterness. But whatever you do on your own, it will not have any hope of really resolving it. Or you can open it up to God. Now I know that God often feels distant at those moments but I have to say I I don't understand the people who pray their happy steady prayers when everything's going well and then stop praying when it gets tough if someone moves away a little bit you shout at them don't you to get their attention You have a choice. You can either simply deal with the suffering in isolation or you can take it to God. Prayer does change things. It opens us up to new possibilities. It stops the suffering itself becoming a closed abscess. It may not resolve things quickly, it certainly won't resolve things painlessly. And it may not resolve things in precisely the way we want it to. Hannah. Delighted that she eventually got a child. There is no promise that you will get exactly what you start praying for. But it does change things. And here's the third lesson what it really changed in Hannah was her. She learned a lesson that you find throughout the pages of Scripture, which I've put there as we gain through giving away. Jesus put it like this Whoever loses his life for me will find it. It's paradoxical, isn't it? You you give your life away to Jesus. And then, just then, you find it. Look at what Hannah said. She made a vow, verse 11. She made a vow, saying, O Lord Almighty, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life. No razor will ever be used on his head. The lack of a razor indicates that she's going to dedicate that child to the Lord's service. It's not the reason for a lack of razor on my face of recent times. Um, But it was to be for Samuel. She is giving this child back to the Lord. She is prepared to give away the most precious thing in her life the thing that she has longed for more than anything else in her life. She has seen that she must do that. Because, you see, anyway, all good things in her life were a gift from God in the first place. Everything that you and I have is simply a gift from God. Your possessions, your family, your life, is a gift from God. And God says, you only actually get to really enjoy those gifts if you offer them back to me. By the end of the story, Hannah has a son and she doesn't have a son. She doesn't have a son Privately, for her own enjoyment, she has to endure some separation from him. But she has a son. And she knows him and loves him. And that is just an extreme example, really, of what every believer must accept. Parents none of your children is your own they are gods he gave them to you for you to care for them look after them and nurture them as his stewards but they belong to God not to you and they always will you have a proper relationship with them when in a sense you give them back, all of us, your possessions, they belong to God. You could be like a, a spoilt child receiving his gift, um, running off, opening it in secret, playing for it in the in the um, uh, the privacy of your own room. But frankly, most spoiled children who do that find that the toy they can't operate properly and they break it and it doesn't work out. Or you could be like a sensible good child who opens the present with their parents, who asks advice about how the toy should be played with and who plays with it with them. They're the happy ones. You could take all the wonderful things that God has given you, grab them for yourself, keep God at arm's length, and do your best to try and enjoy them in the privacy of your own life. But you'll mess it up. And it'll turn to dust. Or you could say to God, How do you want me to use this gift you've given me, these possessions you've given me, this relationship that you've given me, this job that you've given me, this good health that you've given me, this opportunity that you've given me? How do you want me to use it, God? It's not mine, it's yours. I want to use it for you. Then, you find riches. Hannah's a happy woman that she sees her son once a year. She's a happy woman. Because she's learned to enjoy the gift of God in his presence as a gift from God. That is how God works. He blesses those who mourn with him, before him. He comforts them. He encourages them. That is the city of God. But you only get to belong to that civilization if you're prepared to give everything back. All that self-grabbing, self-assertion is just the city of man. And God will bring it down. So you see, every one of us has a choice here. And I don't want to minimise it. It's a big one. It's a big one. Jesus was quite uncompromising. Anything that you love more than me, he says, means that you're not worthy of me. Give it all back to me. Are you prepared to do that? Like Hannah, the test case will be what's most precious to you. Is it your reputation? You couldn't cope with shame for the sake of Jesus? Is it your your possessions? You couldn't cope with poverty for the sake of Jesus? Is it some precious relationship? You couldn't cope with being without that person for the sake of Jesus. Is it your health? What is it? That's the nub point can you give it back to him and find life nobody in all of history has ever been disappointed with what he gives back but they do have to give everything